difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, and Tasha Robinson. In our last episode, we looked at the microbial terror of Elia Kazan's film noir, Panic in the Streets. Today, we bring it much more up to date with Contagion, Steven Soderbergh's 2011 thriller about what a global pandemic might actually look like. Soderbergh has always been interested in connecting the dots. And Contagion does for pandemics what traffic did for the drug war and the laundromat did for the financial chicanery of the Panama Papers. Written by Scott Z. Burns, the film is a kaleidoscopic treatment of an illness called MEV1 with a startling 25% mortality rate. It starts with a businesswoman, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, contracting the disease at a casino in Macau and bringing it back to America in the home she shares with her husband, played by Matt Damon, and their two children. As the outbreak becomes known to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, they scramble first to contain the virus and then to treat it, sending an epidemic intelligence service officer, played by Kate Winslet, to the front lines. There are many other characters here, too, including Marion Cotillard as an epidemiologist for the World Health Organization who gets kidnapped in Hong Kong, Jennifer Eel as a CDC research scientist working on a vaccine, and Jude Law as an Alex Jones-like conspiracy theorist who seizes the opportunity to enrich himself. Contagion has been a huge hit lately on streaming rental sites because people want to know about what they can expect from the coronavirus. But is it a good idea to watch it right now? Are we comforted by it? (laughs) We'll see what everyone thinks after the break. It was a groundbreaking ceremony for a new factory. Did you mention seeing anyone who was sick? Anyone on a plane at the airport? No. She said she was jet-lagged. The average person touches their face three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, and each other. Matt! No, no, uh, uh, go up to your room, honey. So we have a virus with no treatment protocol and no vaccine at this time. Had a seizure this morning, Beth. Yeah, she had a history of seizures. No, no, no. Allergies. No. As of last night, there were 32 cases. Unfortunately, she did die. Right. And he says, well, can I go talk to her? Mr. Amoff, your wife is dead. What are you talking about? Okay. What happened to her? What happened to her? Is there any way someone could weaponize the bird flu? Is that what we're looking at? Someone doesn't have to weaponize the bird flu. The birds are doing that. Watch this. It's transmission, so we just need to know which direction. On day one, there were two people, and then four, and then 16. In three months, it's a billion. That's where we're headed. They're calling out the National Guard. They're moving the president underground. People will panic. Get away! It will tip over. The truth is being kept from the world. Cook your samples, destroy everything. Hello. I need you to get me the names of everyone who serves this room. It's an emergency. Okay, gang. Uh, so, up front... <laughs> Uh, was this a soothing experience for you, or did it, or did it, was it freak, freak you the hell out? 
<sighs> I mean, definitely the latter. I, I, I will say we first kind of batted around the idea of talking about Contagion as a, a Patreon exclusive back before coronavirus had really made serious inroads into the United States. And it was still a threat and something that people were, were thinking a lot about, but it hadn't really progressed to the stage of immediacy and upending our daily lives to the point that it has now and the point it had when I watched this movie that this past weekend things have changed a lot even just in the in the few days since I since I was since mm-hmm. I watched this movie but um I think if I had watched it when this virus was still a little more removed from my daily life, it may have been a, a little easier I mean I, I've seen this movie before I saw it w- when it was in theaters. But I also think sort of its peak culturally may have have been a few weeks back. I don't think as many people are watching Contagion today as they were maybe two weeks ago when, when we first started talking about this, because it feels a, a lot more real than it did in 2011 and a lot more real than I presume it did to the people who are watching it, you know, three or four weeks ago. So yeah, you don't have to watch it now. I mean, I mean, yeah. I, what what strikes me is is how much it got right. I mean, it's a very, you know, very well researched bit of a uh, uh, screenwriting, and I mean, I hope we don't get as far along as it, as, as this goes. I mean, it, the the sort of like disorder in the streets element has yet to come into play, at least where I live, and probably where I don't I haven't really heard too much about it, but uh, elsewhere, but. uh I don't know. <laughs> I did not find it comforting, so is what I'm trying to say. Well, I mean, I think what comfort there is to find in it is that it ends. You know, it, it takes a long-ass time, but thanks to the action of some smart and proactive virologist or, or vaccine people who make vaccines, <laughs> you, you know, like... <laughs> Science it, it, people. Yeah, yeah, those, those, those science people. So there, there's comfort in the idea that the science people will eventually save us um (laughs) but there's a whole lot of discomfort leading up to that seeing what happens between now and then and having it broken down in a very Soderberghian like roadmap kind of way like I don't think the coronavirus and and COVID-19 is precisely analogous to MEV1 for a variety of reasons but just sort of the progression of societal breakdown feels very real and maybe prescient and that is very upsetting (laughs) but you know the the thing that i keep hearing people say about this is like it will end we don't know what's going to happen between now and then but it will end and i think that is sort of the takeaway from contagion too is that there is an end point it's just everything that comes before the end point that is really scary I actually did find it comforting, strangely enough. Definitely not in the early going, where you're just cringing as you're watching people touch things. (laughs) Uh, And not at certain points, particularly towards the late going, at the point where it becomes clear that there is a vaccine and that the government is facing the deeply problematic moral choice of how to distribute it when Mm -hmm. there isn't enough of it yet and how to control people who are going to go berserk trying to get this thing that will save their lives. I feel like one of the most interesting things the movie does in just a very low key sort of way is kind of bring up like, what are the moral limits of behavior when that behavior is all that's standing between you and a pretty guaranteed ugly and immediate death, which is something, you know, movies don't explore that kind of thing much. Like there's a feeling in action movies in particular that 
Uh, if your life is in danger, it is perfectly okay to kill anybody and everybody uh, around you without moral question. You know, they're if they're threatening your life, they're bad guys and they all deserve to die. Here, it's much more a question of how, like, how far are you willing to go in order to secure something that might prevent you from dying within the next two days of a disease? That doesn't sound comforting at all. I, what I found comforting wasn't just... So, so wait, waiting on it, Tasha. Tasha. Yeah, Tasha's really taking her contrarian streak to a, a new level here. Like, I find that very comforting. What, what, I, what I found comforting wasn't just that it'll end. What I was finding comforting, I think, is just the degree to which there's going to be process to it all. The degree to which, so far at least, we're doing better than the people in this movie in terms of being aware of the of the issue of like clearly communicating the the risks clearly communicating what needs to be done about it and behaving in civil ways like in the same sort of way that seeing all of those uh, signs on storefronts that that basically said like we're going to get through this together uh, seemed comforting to me watching the process like the process may be difficult it may be full of like ethical decisions it may be full of uh shortcuts taken in in science or in uh thorough regulation but the fact that it kind of breaks it all down to a process and that it shows a worst case scenario. You know, the, the MEV1 in this mm -hmm. movie is a disease with a 25 to 30% uh, mortality rate. Coronavirus, the worst number I've seen on it is uh, 6.8. And Oof, that's... Really? You saw that number? <laughs> yeah, no, no. but but specifically having to deal with elderly people in very packed oh, environments I see. who that's have specific. Bad, okay. bad underlying conditions. Mm -hmm. In cases... Number. Yeah, yeah, in cases where people who contract the disease get medical care, it drops to something more like like one percent, which is still too high and still has the potential to be very scary. But compared to what we're seeing in this film, basically what I felt like uh, watching this film gave me was like an extreme worst case scenario that made currently where we are seem like a relief. You know, yeah. we're we're actually pretty deep into this. We're like well over a hundred days into coronavirus. It's new to like us personally as Americans. The process of sheltering in place is new to us as Americans. But in terms of when it was first discovered, uh, we're very, very deep into this movie at this point, and they had it so much worse than we did. It's kind of like watching Jaws may make you afraid of the ocean for a while, uh, but it also kind of presents like a worst case scenario that most of us are not actually going to, to get to. You might just lose a leg to the shark. That's no big deal, right? <laughs> it's it's more like the the fact that so many people are watching this maybe will uh, help us like behave a little better as a society. You know, the the fact that we can look at this and say this really could get bad if we don't wash our hands, if we don't maintain awareness of the community, if we don't care about other people, which is something that Americans seem to struggle with from time to time, like just basic empathy. Uh, is something that we see every day in people uh, and how they behave to each other on a small scale and something we see refuted every day in the ways people behave to each other on a large scale. So this movie felt like a really potent warning to me in a way that that actually felt a little warming. It's also just, I think it's a, a, a well-made... Yeah. I don't yeah. know if I want to call it a movie. It, it felt uh -huh. like it felt like a teaching tool. It felt like a montage. <laughs> it felt like a sequence of it's events. A movie... I don't know. I don't know if it's a movie. I mean, it's not a story about anybody in particular. 
Matt I mean, Damon's I think Matt sure, Damon's character but... is sort of the heart of it, if you will. I think there's just so much filmmaking on display. Like, like I, I understand narratively why you, you might say that, but like, I think just as a... Like that opening montage where you're seeing it sort of like bounce around from person to person without actually knowing quite what it is yet. And there's that that really uh, percussive score. And it's just like, it's so visceral. And there's there's a lot of moments like that through the movie. Like it is a plotty movie and that a lot happens, but I feel like so much of the filmmaking is focused more on creating a feeling than telling you exactly what's happening. But there is so much that we're being shown happening at the same time. Like, it's a very, it feels like it has a real sense of purpose throughout it. And it's achieved through the filmmaking, I think, more than, you know, the script or the narrative. Yeah, let me, I kind of want to backtrack just a little bit to respond to what Tosh was saying on the comforting versus not comforting question. For one, I, I feel like it's imperative to communicate to our listeners that we are recording this on. Thursday, March nineteenth, and it could, because really every every second, you know, or every hour is just something for the time capsule, and that what the world looks like now, as opposed to what it is when people actually listen to this podcast, who the hell knows? You know, I mean, we, maybe we can guess based on other models and the way things have gone in Italy, for example. Maybe we're you know right now they're just they're doing what we're doing, but they've done it for a long time. Uh, maybe that's what it's going to be. But they also do it in a really scary context of a lot of um, their citizens passing away and getting sick. Um, so we'll we'll see where, where the, it stands in that regard. Uh, but I'm kind of with Tasha on the comforting scale and that the fact that this disease kills 25 to 30% of the people that are infected, I mean, that is a staggering rate. And that is that accounts for so much of almost the near apocalyptic effect uh, that it has on society. I mean, I, I, you know, those numbers make a huge difference. They just have to, <laughs> you know, I mean, like losing that many people is profound. And so I think um, the fact, you know, so relatively speaking, we can't necessarily say, oh boy, we're going to, we're going to go to rationing and people are going to be, you know, uh, out there with their guns trying to ransack homes. I mean, I think that the percentages matter in, in, a situ- in that situation. And I think there's something about the percentages for coronavirus that are manageable just in terms of the maintenance of a civil society, for example, and also, you know, the fewer deaths and that sort of thing. So that sense comforting, but you know, in other senses, obviously not so much. Uh, but in terms of the filmmaking, yeah, but this is something that yeah, I think what was one of Soderbergh's touchstone kind of movies is um, All the President's Men. I mean, it's a, it's a movie that he, uh, and I, I think that approach to filmmaking is something he takes here and he's taken in other films too, like the ones I mentioned in the keynote. He really is interested in how systems work and how things get passed along and how one end of the chain affects another end of the chain. And, and Contagion has does such a masterful job of giving you all sorts of different aspects of this disease and, and what the types of characters who might be involved, um, whether they're uh, victims or whether they're on the front lines and treating patients, whether they're, you know, working on a vaccine, all of those different, you know, angles are covered in the movie to just such great effect. I mean, he just is able to do this, these information loaded movies 
with a deftness that is so elusive to other directors. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he kind of gets, you know, sometimes gets written off as clinical, and certainly this this movie has, and I think Tasha would, would say it's it's sort of, uh, it does have, a, have that element to it, but I don't know, I think there's a, an emotional element between the lines of the clinical stuff that that's really can be quite powerful in his films. I, mean, I, think, I think Matt Damon is terrific in this, and I think that scene at the end, that meltdown, is really quite affecting and it's how it's also kind of the story of a marriage kind of laid bare by this as as, as well and like an unfinished business he has with his wife and and that'll never be resolved because you know you may think you're living in one kind of movie but suddenly you're living in a very different kind of movie and maybe you know i don't know maybe your head's getting peeled back by a bunch of scared oh doctors <laughs> I, um, I, I think he must have had some beef with gwyneth paltrow the way she's dealt with in this movie. It's so mm. brutal. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow head head injury is, is sort of a, you could do, you could do a, a, a pairing of those at least between this and seven. Yeah. Uh, to stay on the topic of their marriage being laid bare and Gwyneth Paltrow, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around how I feel about the infidelity element coming into play here. Like I understand again, sort of on a narrative level, her needing to have that stop in Chicago so that MEV1 would have this other vector point, basically, and it wouldn't just be confined to Minnesota. So like, I get the reason for it. But again, to go back to what I was talking about in the Panic in the Streets episode, it does attach this moral element Mm. to it that I'm not entirely comfortable with. But I also think it does, as you say, Keith, sort of add a an emotional wrinkle to that to that marriage beyond just sadness that someone died. Mm. So, like I said, I don't quite know how I feel about it, but I don't know. I kind of find myself wanting to see the version of this movie how it would work without that element in play. I think you make a good point in that her infidelity is what is what causes this terrible world crisis to break out you know uh, and it's uh uh, that's a lot to put on one affair but i I do like the emotional complications of the the movie and i and that's another thing that i find so immediately identifiable about it is like it's like what happens when you're in quarantine from the one when you know your daughter comes to see you and you can't give her a hug or you know or if someone you care for passes away and you can't go to the funeral i mean that's something we have to deal with right now (laughs) Um, well and also the idea of immunity is interesting and it's like that's a question that hasn't really come up in our real world yet i don't think we we know that we don't have enough data yet to to know that um whether some people are are more immune or, or more prone to to catching it obviously more people or certain people are more prone to to suffering more by it but just the idea of you know the a sector of the population being immune to this and what that does to them um is interesting and we see it play out a little bit in Matt Damon's character. So I mean should we break it down a little bit further? I mean this is a this is kind of a, a big organism of a movie. Are there pieces of the film subplots to the film that 
were more resonant to you than than others? I think when I saw it before and when I saw it again, I found the whole courtyard uh, plot mm-hmm. it, it ends rather abruptly. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's kind of sort of the narratively, I get it, but I'm not sure it necessarily works within the film itself. It feels like it's it's just built to get to that moment at the end where it's revealed that they're given fake mm-hmm. vaccines, you know, to, to sort of make that last point about how even this solution is going to be complicated by all these other factors. Like I like I like that beat. I think that's an important beat to get into this story, but it does feel like her whole reason in this movie is to get us to that beat, not to be like a character who has her own real role in this. There's a lot of uh, sort of subplots or character plots in this that end abruptly. Like the the whole business with Elliot Gould, like he's a pretty prominent character in the story. And then he does something and then he just disappears. He's just gone uh, where the story is completely done with him. And on some levels, I found that a little refreshing. You know, you don't have a a World War Z uh, kind of situation where you've got one character who's suddenly supposed to fight the zombie apocalypse on every level uh, around the world in every city. Uh, personally, <laughs> uh, you've, you've got, you know, it takes a village. It takes a scientific community to come together and, and solve this problem. And some people like lose their lives in the process and end up like not being able to contribute anymore. So it feels like realistic in a way, but in terms of having like a character through line, like a character, like there are literally lethal stakes for a lot of these characters. And yet at the same time, it just doesn't feel like there are any stakes because we lose them. Uh, We lose so much of them. Like I wanted to see a lot more of the John Hawks character in particular, Mm. I don't love the way the movie kind of like brings him up as maybe emblematic of like the working class and then just uses him as a device. But we see him at the beginning. We see him, we get like a line from him in the middle and then we see him at the end and it's supposed to be this kind of emotional payoff. What's going on there? But we don't have any idea who he is as a character. And we don't really have that much more sense for, you know, somebody like Lawrence Fishburne or even Jennifer L. Like, there are a lot of different things going on in this movie that feel like little chunks of people's lives in the same way that Panic in the Streets does. And we'll we'll get to that parallel specifically. But here it felt less like everybody's got a story and we just don't have time for those stories, but they're out there. And more like everybody's got a function and we're going to see that function, but we don't really care about them as people otherwise. And I found that problematic. The only people who it feels like we really take the time to get to care about on an emotional level in the movie are people who die. I think I would maybe cite Jude Law's character as an exception to that, not as someone we care about, but as someone who has a a full arc. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, going back to, to Scott's question, I don't love the, <laughs> the, the character's arc, or, or I should say I don't like it as the really the the movie's only representation of the media and how information spreads to the public mm-hmm. um, because I think that is a, a really important part of all of this and we only really get to see it through this sort of huckster character and the movie like makes very plain that he is uh you know operating from a, a place of ill intent you know and it we even like 
get the confirmation at the end that like he faked it. He faked having the virus and the and using the forsythia, you know. I almost wish that we hadn't that it had been left ambiguous whether he had actually contracted the virus and recovered versus faking it, just because I think making that character's intention so plainly evil, <laughs> you know, in in the end, it, it takes some of the the complication and the nuance away from the the question of how people get and disseminate information in a situation like this, which is a, a really important part of the story that for a film that is so interested in the many moving parts of, of this, it, it kind of, I, I think, whiffs a little bit there. I think his character is kind of uh, like a hilariously specific moment in time. Like what Scott was saying about- He's a blogger. He's, well, he's not, he's not just a blogger. He's a representation of the blogosphere. And like he defiantly talks about the importance of the blogosphere. And in 2011, uh, he sounded like a nitwit. You know, he sounded like somebody trying to claim that uh, this inherently- ephemeral uh like unknown little thing that he was into was somehow more important than the the print media and these days i watch that film and i'm like oh wow you went from uh, two million uniques a month to 12 million uniques a month over the course of like three months that's an amazing growth rate like congratulations dude uh you 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 clearly are like getting the virality that you need but every time he every time he holds up his uh viewership it's meant as kind of a a knock against him like a joke against him um that he thinks like he's so important because of these numbers but but now we all work for sites where these numbers are literally determining whether people have jobs or not so it, it just in a way doesn't you, sorry, you find he, this movie comforting uh <laughs> no i do not find that aspect of it very comforting nor do i find the degree to which a guy can commit fraud on camera and have 12 million people hanging on his every word uh, while he lies egregiously for for profit. Like, of course, none of that is comforting. I guess 50s style, he gets caught and punished in the end because you can't just like leave that open-ended sort you, of you've, you've got to have mean, a resolution yeah this the well the, the jude law thing kind of resonated with me now because because of the alex jones connection of uh, you mm-hmm. know jones is out there trying mm-hmm. to sell coronavirus toothpaste or something absurd like that and that was that's what his whole platform is about is to push these absurd conspiracy theories and rantings in order to sell supplements and other crap off his website um, and it's just so uh, it, Jude Law is in a way is a little more is somehow more subtle <laughs> about it than, than, than Alex Jones, which is saying something. But I think Genevieve is right in that the film is missing that the legitimate media component and and how it reacts to the story and to some of the information. I, mean, I think that you just maybe it just has to be a thing where you can only do so much and uh but to have that one but you guy get a lot of represent- yeah to have like, him represent relatively that whole speaking <laughs> to have him represent that whole sector is is troubling to some extent but to kind of go back to something tasha was saying i i do like the connection i do think it's crucial the connection between Lawrence fishburne and john hawk in the movie because the question of who has access and who doesn't to treatment who's who's on the inside and who's on the outside quite literally is so important in this situation and it's something that we're seeing now i mean i mean every basketball team in the nba is getting coronavirus tests that none of nobody else is and so we we you know and uh you know and certainly when you get to a situation where where there might be a treatment or a vaccine 
the haves and the have-nots, I mean, I think that's going to play a big part in terms of like who has access and who doesn't. It's a big, important part of this story. And uh, and I was kind of grateful that the film did include both of those characters. I mean, and the fact is like, maybe that you would want all of these characters to be more nuanced, but I think the goal of the film really is more about trying to give you a broader picture is to try to give you give you elements of a system and and uh those elements to me were pretty crucial and uh resonant well and could we say that the the real main character protagonist of this movie is the virus like i i, I mean I, I mean well i i it sounds cheesy but but i'm i'm yeah. serious like think about how the movie ends like we get a resolution of where it came from of where it originated like it's the you know it, it ends with the the origin story of mev1 you know and it starts with this sort of introduction to it moving around so like all the moving parts around it are in service of telling us more about the virus, what it does, and how it affects people, not just on a physical level, how it affects society, you know? Like, I think the virus itself is sort of the organizing principle of the movie, and everything else is sort of supporting. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of the the Winchester 73 or 20 bucks uh, mm. kind of model. The inanimate carbon rod. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I mean specifically movies built around, uh, usually traditionally yeah. built, built around an object passing from hand to hand. Yeah, large John or whatever. Mm -hmm. The In red violin. Case, hey, there's some red violin. ideas here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, but in this case, it's a, a virus pin passing from hand to hand. I, I will say the the part of the film that I personally found most engaging and and moving and emotionally affecting and horrifying were just the amount of time that Soderbergh spends on uh, people touching things. Oh, touching yeah. things that you God know almighty. other people are going to touch people <laughs> coughing and sweating and touching things people picking up things that one of those people have touched just mm -hmm. the, i mean i i like i've seen heist movies that were less tense than gwyneth paltrow making her way through that uh that casino <laughs> i mean the scene in the bus too i mean i also like what a brilliant hook to start your movie with is that you know black screen a cough and then the day two card i mean that is oh, just that, like yeah uh, like, I, I'm, I'm in for whatever cough. at that point yeah yeah well and day two like to go back to you know how it ends you know it, it circles back around to, to day one like it just it kind of by starting a day two it sets up this the central mystery of, of what is this thing and, and where mm -hmm. did it come from um I, I think it's actually structurally pretty pretty genius to do that to do it that way the wrong bat met the wrong pig yep it is pretty genius although part of me is uh, just a little frustrated by various things that we set in motion and then don't really follow up on like they discover that gwyneth paltrow is patient zero as far as they can tell but what does that gain them? I mean, they already know where all of these disease centers are. Like by the time they figure it out, there are disease clusters in like half a dozen cities and, and they're spreading. Like I'm not certain why it matters. And the movie never tells me why it matters. Kate Winslet makes a big deal out of discovering the the factor of like how many people uh, each person infects. And then I feel like we don't really come back to that idea in a meaningful way. We keep seeing like scientific endeavors pursuing various things about the disease, but then I'm, I don't really see a lot of those things paying off in the same way. We don't really see a payoff for, Oh, by the way, we just filled this village up full of uh, placebos. 
the fact that the village seems to be doing fine without inoculations in the first place makes, oh, by the way, we gave you all placebos seem a lot less like a death sentence, a lot less emotionally moving. But she clearly had some kind of personal connection there, and we don't get any sense of payoff for it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just kind of bound to happen in a movie with this sort of sprawl, you know, and, and sprawl is sort of the the name of the game with a, a viral infection, you know, it just it, it tendrils out in a million different directions. And following one of those directions uh, closely doesn't really gain you anything in, in the big picture. So it's it's a big picture movie. And I, I agree with you that, again, like Panic in the Streets, there's a lot of sort of, uh, you know, narrative dead ends that I would ostensibly like to, to see more of, but that's not what the movie's up to. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I mean, this easily could be a, a miniseries and for sure. it could easily be 10 times as long. And that's not the project that he chose to make. I don't think anyone wants a 10 hour uh, version, of a miniseries version of Contagion right now. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know that they wanted it back in 2011. Yeah. yeah. There's a time when, when Showtime would have backed the money truck up to Soderbergh to do it. So uh, we were starting to edge into some Panic in the Streets talk. So let's let's edge all the way. Uh, we'll be right back after this break to talk about the, about the connections between Panic in the Streets and Contagion. Hello. Hello, Mr. Hello? Barnes. Yes. This this is Doctor Mears from the Centers for Disease Control. I believe. Hi. hi. I believe you may have had contact with Beth Emhoff last week. Yeah, I picked her up at the airport. What's this about? <coughs> How are you feeling today? Uh, pretty cruddy, to be honest. Head is pounding. I probably picked up some sort of bug. Where are you right now? I'm on the bus, heading to work. I'd like you to get off immediately. Wait, what? What's going on? Where? Where? Where, where? Where's the bus, Aaron? Um, uh, Lake and Lindale. Can you tell me what's Lake going on? Lake and Lindale. I really need you to get off that bus. Listen, it's quite possible you've come in contact with an infectious disease and that you're highly contagious. What, what? Do you understand? I want you to get okay. off now and I'm stay away off. from other people. No, no, what do I do? Don't talk to anyone. Don't touch anyone. That's the most important thing. We'll send somebody to meet the bus. Okay. I'm on my way to you now, Aaron. <coughs> now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. So one of the things they have in common is the role the media plays in disseminating information, and and that can be a good thing. And uh, in the case of maybe these two movies, a bad thing or a potentially bad thing. Mm -hmm. So, Keith, you want to talk about that? I don't think either of these movies are particularly starry-eyed about the role the media would play in such a uh, such a situation nope. as this. I mean, as you, as we were talking about before, I mean, Jude Law's character is the only representation we get of the media, and even that's pretty questionable. I mean, we also also get the uh, editor he approaches at the at the legitimate newspaper who comes to him begging for for Scythia. Yeah. You, you know. Oh yeah, that's that's, uh, that's ugly crawling stuff. on her knees. You know. <laughs> that's that's ugly. Um, yeah. But I mean, you know, he calls himself a freelance journalist he's really a scam artist but at the same time that he is the most prominent figure and and then in panic in the streets we get a reporter who's doing his job and who is basically taken into custody prevent him from doing that job to avoid uh what what would he be preventing at that point some kind of panic in the streets right <laughs> um but i mean the the film is pretty non-judgmental about that i mean it, it strikes me it's presented as basically what what has to be done unfortunately to, to for the greater good 
That makes me a little uneasy, as the Jude Law one does too. But but uh, I don't know. Are, are these films right? Is it just a matter of you really do need to lock down and control information at this point for the greater good, or or uh, are both these kind of like a, a little uh, questionable in their attitudes toward uh, toward the press? There's a really interesting article, uh, maybe a month or so ago, about why gay representation is so bad in blockbuster films. And a lot of the reasoning in the article, I think it was in the New York Times, um, was exactly what you'd expect, you know, not wanting to offend conservatives, not wanting to offend countries overseas where movie companies, movie studios are hoping to make inroads. But the reason that surprised and interested me most was that blockbuster cinema is just not often about specificity, that any time spent on the specificity of an individual character is against the speed and flow of the movie. And if you want a like a fast moving story that's all about the action, you don't really spend a lot of time on the details of uh, various characters. And here, I think the same principle sort of applies. Like the principle of the story is that you've got like a small group of people fighting intensely against this like growing, spiraling problem out of control. And the sense is the more people that know about it, the worse off they are. The story is specifically about the people working behind the scenes to control the pandemic. And any interference in that from the outside is a problem. So it's a funny sort of thing that both of these movies kind of portray the press as an enemy, one because they're disseminating false information and one because they might disseminate true information. Hmm. But in both cases, it's just sort of a sense of, well, if this story gets out of the control of the small group of people we're following, like who knows how many people we've got to take into account in this story. We need to keep it small so the cast is plausible, so the story function is plausible. So it almost seems like less like a big societal commentary on the role of truth or deception, the role of the press, the way the press is the enemy of the people, and more just a sense of like the press complicates things in a way that's the enemy of like a fast-paced thriller that can focus on a, a small handful of people and what they're doing. I think the, and, and this is maybe more of a point of contrast, pivoting off a point of comparison, but there's the fact that these two movies are taking place in very different media landscapes from each other and from where we are now. You know, like Panic in the Streets is taking place in a, in a paradigm where that reporter's story wouldn't get to most people until the next day, by which time the characters are hoping this will have been, been put to bed and is, you know, pretty much. And then in Contagion, you know, we kind of already talked about how it's at this point in time where uh, sort of online media still has this veneer of distrust around it or, you know, um, disreputable. Dis yes, yes, it's still seen as, as sort of disreputable. And, you know, obviously, I think Twitter was around in, in 2011, but it, it certainly wasn't any way, shape or form. Social media in general wasn't any way, shape or form what it is now. And, that's a whole different media context that uh, is complicating our current situation that is obviously not present in either one of these movies. So I think just the role of the media kind of in any movie, but particularly in, in these movies set uh, 70 years years apart, you know, just really highlights it's less about the media as an industry and more just about how information is disseminated at that in that time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, for, for one, I do remember seeing this, a press screening of 
contagion and the response that the line about blogging being yeah. like gra- graffiti with uh, punctuation was just people love love that line. So, but blogging at that point was something that was obviously happening quite a lot, but. Um, that was a, that was low hanging fruit as far as comedy is concerned. I would say though, if, if you compare the two films, Panic in the Streets, it just feels like a very smart and justifiable thing to limit that information. You know, the reporter's out there doing his job. He's doing a fine job. He he senses there's something going on with the story, which is all right. But I think the the thought that if people knew that a potential plague was being released upon the city. That would yield a suboptimal result that would have nothing to do with the outbreak and everything to do with panic in the streets. But with with contagion, I think that's that Genevieve was right before and saying saying like this this is just a missing element of of the film because I think media can and as we have experienced has been important, extremely important at a time like this to in giving us the information that we need to uh to try to arrange our lives so to not have that element in contagion seems like a seems like a mistake because if you if you're really going to going to have Jude Law take up all that real estate that doesn't work he's a very specific kind of he's like a sub, it's like going with a subset rather than the, the the real thing one of the interesting points of contrast in this movie is between a race against time um you have to stop this thing before it spreads and what happens to society when you can't contain the disease any longer and it breaks out? Um, Genevieve, do you want to talk about that? In Panic in the Streets, the you know forty-eight hour we have forty-eight hours to to stop this element. It, it gives a, a lot of structure to the film. We talked in the first half about how it, it leads us to this this nice tidy conclusion that you know your mileage may vary on, but it does kind of give us a framework for this infection. And Contagion does as well. It's just a much longer framework because the, it isn't contained the way that, that it is in Panic in the Streets. So, you know, um, again, the, the time element is very upfront. We start, like you said, with, with day two and there's the day markers throughout this to show us how this plays out beyond the containment phase that, that we see in Panic in the Streets. I, I don't even think there is a containment phase in, in, in Contagion. I guess that's kind of what Kate Winslet's character is is up to before she uh, she succumbs, is sort of trying to, to track this and, and figure out how, how it has spread. But, you know, the horse is out of the barn by that point. So um, I, I just think the element of time in both of these stories is really tied up in how the outbreak works or, or in the case of panic in the streets doesn't really 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 work but um they both uh, are, are very dependent on their time frames i guess is the point and it makes a difference in terms of the feel of the films too i mean because that you know it, when you are in a race against time i mean that automatically gives the film some juice and, and i think i don't know I, I think contagion has that element too i mean there there's going to be you know if people are dying at the rate that they're dying and they're scrambling to get a vaccine and they're scrambling to try to get it out to infected people and into society at large. You know, that panic, that, that urgency that never leaves you, but it does result in two different types of experiences as a viewer. Uh, one that's sort of a taut thriller and, and the other one that is a little bit more complicated and expansive and, um, 
you know, agonizing in its way uh, because. But it's uh, never not urgent. To, the, like urgency yeah. is is a really good good word to use to describe it because like contagion never really lets up, even though it expands over such a much broader span of time than Panic in the Streets does. I think Panic in the Streets actually gets a little sluggish in in certain parts, in a way that I wouldn't say Contagion does. So I was gonna say the way it's structured is is you know with Panic in the Streets you have one story you're focused on. And you can kind of just go from the most tense part of one story to the most tense part of another, the way this, the, the, um, right. Burns and Soderbergh's structure of the movie. Yeah, that's a good point. To some degree, what, I mean, what we get about the urgency uh, story is uh, like a sense that we're seeing almost every moment that matters. And the point where Widmark's character potentially takes a couple of uh, entire hours to like lie down on a cot and pass out right. <laughs> seems like a, a terrifying lapse like you're you're running out of hours dude and and you know it and it's horrifying that you might have to sleep because you're human whereas contagion just skips many 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 days at a time and like every time that number iterates up you know day 33 day 133 whatever the the jump is there's just sort of a sense of like so much like dread and horror and pain just being like very quietly alighted uh in order to get to the next step of the story like Okay, so 100 days of looting, societal uh, disintegration, horrible death in like on basketball courts and and football fields. Uh later, we're just we skip all that and then we get to like the next the next beat that matters, which is somebody injecting themselves with a a drug by way of experimental testing. So, yeah, the I mean the pacing just ends up being very different. But in a way, the stakes also end up being very different because there's much less of a sense of like anything to be done on a low level, like on a participant level or on a a sufferer level towards the end of Contagion. It's basically the slow grinding mechanics of society have to be like allowed to move because that's the only way we're going to we're going to move forward. But at some point, it stops being a story about individuals and starts being a story about society. And the fact that we're looking at individuals within that society just doesn't seem to make all that much of a difference. Tasha, there's another uh, connection that you've teased. Uh, so why don't you take the lead on this one? Well, just in terms of the elaborate character backstories, I think it's interesting that both of these films kind of give you the sense that every person that you spend more than about two minutes with on screen probably has a story. I mean, even the the guys in the morgue doing the dissection on Kolchak uh, have like a whole relationship and a whole yeah. history. There's they go out one every of, week. <laughs> they go out every week. Like one of them wants to go try that new spaghetti joint, but the other one wants to go hit on a waitress. Again, maybe getting back to tentpole movies and that sense of specificity being the enemy of blockbusters. I just feel like it's so rare to see movies on any kind of scale taking the time for these kind of character beats in minor characters that don't hugely matter to the story anymore. Like they only have one function, which is to cut that guy open and discover that he's the carrier of this disease. But we spend all this time on this banter back and forth between them, which makes them very human. Uh, And the business with the mayor and his assistant, or uh, just like anybody else in the film that we get just like these little sort of tantalizing hints of larger, larger lives that weird painter and like what the hell is his relationship to to Widmark's son it just it feels to me like the difference between panic in the streets and contagion is that contagion also makes it feel like all of these people probably have lives but i don't really care about any of them 
none of them have the same kind of like kind of quirky lived in like about the only sense uh of a character that I maybe wanted to know more about was the relationship between uh, Lawrence Fishburne and Kate Winslet. It mm-hmm. didn't necessarily seem like they were pushing towards any sort of like, like personal emotional connection there. Like he's, he's just too obviously like, in a like a close and loving relationship with his partner. I don't think it was meant to be romantic, but it really is important to him that he stand by this woman that he sent into danger. Like he really does feel a sense of guilt about it. He's, trying to do his best for her. And that's the kind of beat that I feel like Contagion could maybe use more of is that sense that these aren't just story functions. These are like real human beings with real stories behind them. I think there's some nice touches along the way though, like uh, that, that she actually dies trying to help someone on, you know, on her deathbed, like trying to give comfort to someone who was, was, you know, desperately cold. Uh, I think, you know, it's not the subtlest uh, bit of character development, but I, I thought, thought it was really movingly played and, and, and says a lot about that character. Yeah, and I was actually going to bring up a similar moment that, again, is is not particularly subtle, but I, um, does kind of speak to what Tosh is talking about as far as like implying a, a greater backstory is uh, that scene toward the end of uh, between Jennifer Ills, uh, Dr. Hextall and her her father who who is sick and she's telling him about the vaccine and they're they're talking about her, you know, getting the Nobel Prize or, or, or talking about the, the person who injected himself getting the Nobel Prize. I don't know. But it comes out in that that like her father is also like she's she's kind of in the family business, you know, and he he, he like has a greater understanding of the sacrifice she's made than than maybe anyone else would. So it's you know, it's in the context of this daughter and her sick father who's probably going to die and she's saved the world uh, too late to save him and it's, you know, very sort of emotional and ostensibly manipulative if, if you don't like that beat. But I think it does kind of give that character, you know, a little more a little more depth and kind of gives you an idea of why she did what she did and why she uh, risked what she risked and, and what uh, upbringing led her to that point. Well, I will say uh, the Winslet character in Contagion is the one that I found most affecting now, but again, I mean, you're, we are so in the moment right now with with the coronavirus, and one of the things that that we've had to think about and worry about is are the people on the front lines are the, are the people mm-hmm. who, are the hospital workers who, from our understanding, have been woefully undersupplied in terms of protective gear, um, and so you have to be worried that we're going to lose some of them, uh, um, that some of them are going to get very sick trying to help people, and so. Uh, you know, Kate Winslet's entire arc in the movie is that is is someone who is very you know aggressively and passionately trying to fight this illness, to advocate for patients, and who contracts the illness and 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 dies doing so. And and um, you know, I think that's something that has already happened and will will happen. And and um, you know, and and you really feel for those people right now. I feel for all of us right now, guys. This is this is <laughs> tough. <laughs> and for and for you, the listener. Yeah, um, yeah. Thanks, yeah. thanks to anyone who uh, who had it in them to listen along to this one. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think the only bit of I mean, if comfort's the right word, but the fact that we're we're all in the same situation, like nobody. I mean, I you know, we're all. This is just is a, a nationwide. Well, it's a global problem, and and it's affecting everyone. And it's like, you know, it's it's there's something to be 
I don't know. There's there's something we said for having something that we can all relate to and all that we're all suffering from, but we're also all in it together. Just to, to you know, even if it sounds a little trite, and I think there's a, to bring it all back. I think there's a little bit of that in Contagion as well. Yeah, I mean it, that is um, that is the, been the, been the effect in, in a dramatically divided countries such as ours, that we can all come together to both uh, contend with this disease and to d- hate that uh, uh, those celebrities singing Imagine. It's, inspi- <laughs> it, it, it's inspiring. Uh, so Panic in the Streets and Contagion are both available for rental on the usual streaming services. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show, in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha Robinson, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I haven't been watching a ton of uh, film lately. I've been watching a ton of TV lately. So I'm going to go back to uh, a film that kind of hung out in my mind a lot in an older period. We were recently putting together for Polygon a list of uh, some of the best movies on Netflix, which had me just searching through Netflix to see what's on there right now. And I ran across Andrea Arnold's American Honey. This is a movie that we did uh, for the Next Picture Show back in 2016 in episodes 49 and 50. We paired it with my own private Idaho, but it's been four years and I'm don't know that it was uh, back then. I assume it was in theaters and not so much easily accessible on Netflix. It also just feels like a movie for the moment. I'm seeing a lot of people doing either social media recommendations or like full on uh, media outlet lists of movies that make you feel like you're outside or, uh, (laughs) you know, movies that (laughs) movies that remind you you of the natural world. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And this movie just immediately popped into my head as, oh, like that's, that is a good example. Like if you're feeling particularly housebound and cabin fevery, and uh, that doesn't even need to be coronavirus related for some of us who are in some of the northern-esque segments of the United States, like it's still fundamentally uh, late winter, early spring. It's as I'm sitting here uh, in my office, it's cold and wet and rainy out. It is a good night to watch a movie about tripping across the American heartland under huge blue skies and uh, like warm beaming sun with a bunch of young, extremely attractive people who are reasonably carefree and uh, certainly helping themselves be more carefree with uh, judicious applications of alcohol, drugs, sex, and freedom. American Honey, Andrea Arnold created this movie. She's a British director, um, and she created this movie by kind of discovering America for herself. She went on this big road trip uh, back and forth across America, finding non-professional actors uh, at spring break parties and hanging out in Walmart parking lots, just kind of these like heartland hangouts for young people with a whole lot of time on their hands, just occupying themselves however they could. And she rounded up a bunch of them and took them on a road trip and kind of encouraged them to bond. The heart of the movie is Sasha Lane as this uh, young runaway coming from a uh, a really unpleasant home situation. She runs across a bunch of young people who tool around in a van as a magazine crew. They roll into a town. um, They hit the streets. They sell uh, bogus magazine subscriptions to anyone and everyone they can. And then they all get back into the van and head out. They're being run by a character played by Riley Keough. 
uh, it's just this like <laughs> the most ruthless, probably 22 year old uh, that you're likely to see in uh, cinema this year. And they're all kind of like beholden to her for what little comforts they get in terms of uh, cheap hotel rooms and uh, cheap food. But they're all they all come across as having come out of like similarly bad situations uh, to the point where like being on the road and getting some form of paycheck and having some form of camaraderie is a good deal. Um, Sasha Lane is just really excellent in this role. She comes across as just kind of uh, smart and principled, but a little feral at the same time. Uh, And she's just one of a crew of people who feel like they don't necessarily have any place else to go, but they're living so, so virulently in the moment that it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's a long movie. It's uh, near, it's 158 minutes, I believe. Um, and so much of it just takes place like out on the road or again in parking lots where they're having impromptu drug, druggy, boozy dance parties where they're having like sing-alongs or fights. Nope. Uh, Yep. <laughs> that was the nope. first time I'd ever heard yep. that song and I became addicted to it. So, yeah, it's it's like an exploration of like a particular kind of aimless Midwestern youth and like a, a discovery of freedom and a discovery of travel and a discovery of the outdoors. Uh, but it's also just like a big open airy film. And if you're needing like a big open airy experience right now, then this, this might be the movie for you. So Andrea Arnold's American Honey, um, it's streaming in various places, but it's also on Netflix if you happen to have Netflix. Yeah, we did pick over that one pretty good. I think at the time, uh, Genevieve was uh, its biggest champion here. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I, I think it's 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 held together well in my mind. I think it's vivid. I always I'm always fascinated by movies about America uh, by people who are not from America. Um, yeah, and and she she it felt like her commitment to immersing herself in this landscape is is you know undeniable. I think. And, yeah, I'm um, excited that it's on on Netflix because I haven't revisited it since we did that podcast four years ago geez yeah um it, it's so. all about open air really? it's about freedom yeah. and being yeah. in the open air and that yeah, is, definitely, that's a nice definitely feeling. a good a good quarantine uh watch if, if yeah. that was the thing that i was actually doing <laughs> <laughs> uh keith what about you i'm kind of stuck on were the magazine subscriptions bogus or were they just kind of just skeezy people selling them i don't i don't, I don't know do we, do we uh, ever... So there are, if you, if you look up MAGACruise, M-A-G, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, you find out a whole lot about the kind of the history of groups that did exactly that kind of thing and like the, sure. the inspiration for the movie. And for the most part, they were bogus. Okay. All right. All right. So my movie has nothing to do with magazine subscriptions or anything. In fact, <laughs> I just kind of chose it at random because I love the title. Um, I was taking a trip a couple weeks ago to go to a wedding. Remember, do you remember traveling do you remember like <laughs> social gathering games? uh was that love do i remember, remember love? weddings yeah exactly uh does anyone remember laughter anyway um <laughs> we um so I, I i it was like a three-hour flight so like i'm gonna i'm gonna try to watch two movies each way so i did i found short movies i had not seen before and i was really taken by this film on the the title of this film the criterion uh channel called a cult is my passport. It's a mm. 1967 uh, Yakuza film from Japan, uh, from uh, directed by D- Nakashi Nomura. And, you know, it's been described as kind of a cross between um, uh, Les Samurai, the, the Jean-Pierre Melville film, and, and Sergio Leone's um, um, you know, spaghetti westerns, and that's really pretty accurate. It's, it's filled with like this kind of like this cool Morricone like score. 
and these amazing close-ups and, and, and really striking action scenes set in the Japanese underworld. But uh, it's also kind of got that sort of like existential, like what does it really mean to you know live the life of a of a, of a mercenary or of a uh, an assassin? Um, you know, it's uh, it's good stuff, and it's, it won't take up a whole lot of your time. It's eighty four minutes long, really uh, just stylish and compelling stuff. And uh, I, if you if you've got the Criterion Channel app or just the service in general I'd, I'd highly recommend it scott how about you uh well for, well first of all i i like i would say i think that that cult is my passport is part of pat oswalt's adventures in movie going series yeah so he, yeah i saw so he, i saw he did that so but... he's yeah he has a pretty good list including your favorite uh the umbrellas of sherberg is, is something that is on his list of uh things, i saw that was a thing on there i haven't watched it yet though yeah but, yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah he's very he's, enthusiastic he's his is great yeah, he really is. He's a he's a true cinephile. He's just no no joke. He um, wrote our introductory essay on the dissolve. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh. So my um, choice is um, not a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, but a movie that's up on Amazon Prime's uh, for your quarantine viewing uh, pleasure called "Blow the Man Down." This is a film by Bridget Savage Cole and Danielle Crudy, and it is I think you could broadly describe it as a um, Fargo-esque film. It's set in a fictional town in Maine, uh, very wintry. Uh, it seems like something, you know, if you've ever been to coastal Maine, it's like, if you know where Bar Harbor is, just imagine just going, you know, way further north than that and along the coast and you're there. It's it's set in this fishing village um, that, um, uh, that, ha- that is its own culture and its own, uh, world and and it's about these two sisters who are who are there uh for uh they've they've just buried their mother and one of them kind of goes out to uh, the bar uh that night uh, she has an encounter with kind of a, a stranger and um she gets wasted and there's some uh he gets aggressive with her and things escalate and she in self-defense, you know, uh, kills him with a harpoon. Uh, so, uh, so he, uh, she and her sister are in a position where they really can't call the authorities. And so they have to try to cover up the crime. Uh, and in doing so, the film kind of unearths a lot of secrets and a lot of history within the town itself. I mean, this, uh, particularly it being this seaport full of, you know, salty sailors who like to uh, uh, go to this brothel, and the brothel in this film is uh, r- run by, um, and the brothel in this film is run by uh, Margot Martindale. Uh, and the film is just loaded with, and she, who's just great. I mean, she's a character who's who's uh, you don't really can't really get a handle Wait. on her. You don't know what what, what is her this, is. This are. character actress Margot character Martindale. Actress Margot Martindale. <laughs> Please refer to her by for her full name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so so she's in it, and so is Annette O'Toole and June Squibb, the actress June. Squibb. So a lot of these really cool, recognizable faces. It's just a culture unto itself. And so it's one of those things where on a plot level, you can see a lot of things that it has in common with movies like Blood Simple and Fargo especially. But uh, the details of it are really connected strongly to this setting. And one of the things that it has going for it is sea shanties. There are these kind of interstitial sequences where burly fishermen sing sea shanties together and it's just it gives the film a great spirit and mood and it's worth checking out it's only 90 minutes long which is which is a nice running time and it's up on amazon prime uh below the man down genevieve 
What about you? All right. Well, um, I'm going to quickly do a uh, double feature recommendation, uh, one inspired by the last movie I saw in theaters before all of this started. Um, That movie was Emma, the latest adaptation of the Jane Austen novel. Uh, This one starring Anya Taylor-Joy, I think a favorite of this podcast. um, Oh, yeah. And directed by first-time feature filmmaker Autumn DeWilde. Uh, Prior to directing Emma, DeWilde was best known as a commercial photographer and a music video director, uh, which feels relevant when discussing this new Emma, because the film's biggest draw, uh, outside of Taylor Joy, who gives a really good performance, and Bill Nye, who also gives a really fun performance, but the biggest draw outside of that is its visual aesthetic, which is truly, truly gorgeous in its costuming and production design especially, but also in its cinematography and even its music choices. uh, It very purposefully toes the line between period piece and the modern day without being overly cutesy about it. Uh, in that respect, it actually reminded me a lot of Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, a film I am on record as liking more than a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it also reminded me of another film, which I'll get to in just a second. But as feels right for a story like Emma, it is very a very buoyant, bubbly film, and it's just sort of a pleasure to be in its company for two hours, uh, which luckily you can do even in this time of closed movie theaters, as it's one of the films Universal is planning to release early on VOD the week that we are recording this. Uh, So by the time you hear this, it should be easily rentable. Um, And if you do that, I'd strongly suggest making it a double feature with my second recommendation, which I think anyone who knows me has probably already guessed. Guys, would would you like to fill in the blank here? That's right. Clueless. (laughs) Um, You know, there's been a lot of talk lately about comfort viewing, and I'm hard pressed to think of a movie that's more comforting to me than Clueless, uh, which in case you are somehow unaware, is Amy Heckerling's 1995 update of Emma. Uh, which transposes the story to contemporary Beverly Hills. Look, I don't need to tell you about Clueless. It's my favorite movie. I've written about it for The Dissolve. Chances are very, very good that you've seen Clueless before. But what I'm suggesting is perhaps you might like to watch it again. Uh, It's my favorite kind of escapist movie, one that's beautiful and bubbly, but also way smarter and more empathetic than it may seem at first glance. And it's exactly the palate cleanser I needed after the intensity of this week's pairing. Uh, We briefly batted around the idea of doing a show around this pairing, but I don't think that's going to happen at this point. So I'll just encourage all of you to do your own double feature of Emma and Clueless. Personally, I can't think of a better way to spend four hours. Okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm happy this ended on a lighter note. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) very purposefully so. So that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out April 7th and April 14th. Tasha, what's coming up next? Uh, Carlo Mirabella Davis's debut film, Swallow, was about to launch a small art house theatrical run ahead of its VOD release when the coronavirus outbreak changed everyone's theatrical release plans. Instead, it went straight to online rental services, where it's available now. It's a startlingly intimate movie that feels particularly of the moment, about a woman in a seemingly perfect marriage, until she begins to experience an eating disorder that has her swallowing tacks, marbles, and other small household items. It's an incredibly quiet psychological thriller about the tensions in her life and how taking these items into her body helps her quell her anxieties until she activates everyone else's anxieties and her illness begins to look like a problem instead of a cure. Swallow makes a remarkable companion to Todd Haynes' 1995 film Safe, similarly about a woman experiencing a mysterious syndrome that takes her body out of her control, to the point where medical professionals aren't sure whether she's experiencing physical reactions to her surroundings or a kind of psychological allergy to the world. 
It's two films about women trying to come to terms with their own physicality and understand how to reassert control of themselves, and two expressions of a similar metaphor about the way women's bodies and behaviors are policed and judged. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Panic in the Streets, Contagion, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for a discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith Phipps? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at kphipps3000. You can find my bylines lots of places like Vulture, um, you know, uh, The Ringer. You know, you can find me at TV Guide. You can find me at, occasionally at Polygon. Um, I'm kind of all over the place. Genevieve, how about you? Uh, well, you can also find me at Vulture, where I am the deputy TV editor, and I am on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com, where you can find my occasional writing about film and TV and a lot of essays that I curate and edit for other people. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in the New York Times, Guardian, Washington Post, and uh, other fine outlets, The Ringer. Uh, I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Next Picture Show.